right. Good morning to you, church. Are you encouraged today? Amen. I'm encouraged. We had a great weekend. Uh, over the weekend, our uh, next-gen d- uh, division of our church uh, put a lot of effort in a fall family retreat. And it wasn't just for those that have kids and, uh, and uh, 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 preschoolers in our kids' ministry and their parents. It was actually for anybody that wanted to come. And we had quite a few of you that, uh, that showed up. I-, I hope you were encouraged, those of you who came. We spoke about a very important topic um, I believe it's going to be go down as the, the most defining topic in this generation and maybe several generations to follow, and that has to do with uh, gender and sexuality. And we talked about God's perspective on gender and sexuality and His purpose for those things. Uh, and it was an encouraging weekend. Um, uh, several of our pastors had an opportunity to speak and to be a part of that. We had Q&A time, and it was just a great time to fellowship together. Uh, and I walked away from it deeply encouraged uh, for no other reason than this, and that uh, there was this affirmation about who we are as a congregation, and that is that we, we believe God's Word, and we stand firm on God's Word, and we will stand firm for God's Word no matter where the culture goes. Uh, we're with Jesus, amen? And we're going to remain there no matter uh, what it may be for us personally because we know that it is always best to be centered on God, centered upon His Word. And that's why we, we take a, a, a lot of time in our worship services. We, we spend time in community groups and Bible study groups. Uh, our Wednesday night activities uh, are very much centered around God's Word. We make it a practice here uh, to open up God's Word and to, and to walk through books of the Bible together. And uh, we have been journeying together through the book of First and Second Thessalonians these last uh, few weeks, a few months actually. And we're going to wrap things up with that today. So I'm going to invite you to open up to the last portion of 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. As we look at a very important subject, um, also a little controversial. I won't tell you what that subject is until we get into it. Um, Let me ask you a question, though, as you're turning there. This is a very practical thing. Uh, How many of you have a car that you're currently driving uh, in which one or more warning lights are popping up on the dashboard. <laughs> Go ahead, listen, I'm going to raise my hand, all right? There's not one right now, but if I had asked this question about three weeks ago, I'd have to raise my hand. So, all right, go ahead, it's confession time. If you have a light, a warning light, like something mechanical is not going right on your car, and your car at least thinks that's the case, uh, raise your hand, all right? Yeah, we're, we're confessing, all right, I get that. Now, I'm not going to ask you this question because it it would vary from person to person, but now, how long does it take for you to do something about that light? (laughs) I remember when I was uh, in college, uh, I had a Chevrolet Monza, and it was a hatchback. Um, It was was red, but it had faded orange. That was my very first car. And for some reason, it had a check engine light come up on it. And uh, I would take it, actually take it to the mechanic, and the mechanic said, I, I, I think there's a problem with it, but I can't tell you what it is. I got so annoyed with the light, I just took a piece of black uh, tape and put it over the light. <laughs> so I don't know if you've gone that far. You know, if, if it takes you a while to, to, to do something about it, it may be that you're in your 20s or your 30s. Um, see, check this out. I just, Gen Zers and millennials were asked about their car maintenance. 
And uh, the results of, the, of this survey shows that it took an average of eight warning lights for them to do something about it. Now listen, I'm not throwing shade on, on, on the Gen Zers and Millennials because that, that we'll find that in every generation. But those warning lights on your car, they're there for a reason, right? They're there for a reason. Something is wrong and something needs to be corrected. They shouldn't be ignored, certainly not for a long time. Uh, it, it's really a sign that if you don't know how to fix it, you need to take your car to the mechanic, let them investigate it, and tell you what to do so that the problem can get fixed. Because if not, it becomes a chronic problem, your car is going to stop altogether, right? Now, Christians, we, we don't have for our spiritual lives, we don't have a dashboard per se, but there will be warning lights that, that, that come up from time to time. If, if we have a spiritual struggle, we're, if in, our, in our spiritual walk, if we're struggling in one way or another, maybe we become disobedient to the Word. We know what the Word has to say on something, but it's a struggle for us. Uh, we have a, a particular temptation, and, and rather than lean into the Word of God and, and let, the, let the Spirit of God do a work in us, we sort of give in to that sin, and so we become disobedient, and before long, we're, we're just a wayward Christian. Our faith derails in Jesus. So what happens if we don't notice the signs? Or, or maybe the signs pop up, and we just ignore it. We put a little tape over the, over the light as if it, it, nothing's going wrong. What, what if we do notice, but we don't want to do anything about it? Well, there's actually a process. There's a response that should take place. Other Christians should step in and help to correct what's going wrong in that person's life. That's what the church in part is about. Because the church isn't just a community of love and compassion. But believe it or not, the church is to be a, a community of confrontation and correction. And we don't like messages like I'm about to preach. I don't like to preach them. I don't, I, I, honestly, I don't. So I'm going to keep this one short, all right? Can I do that? Uh, we don't have a lot to unpack in this passage of Scripture, but it's very, very important what Paul has to say. In fact, Paul closes his second letter to the Thessalonians on this very subject. Let's, let's read it together. If you have your place in Scripture, let me invite you to stand with me. Scripture is going to be on the screen behind me as well if you'd like to follow along. But you follow along as I read the closing words of, of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The last time that I preached, a couple of weeks ago, I was away last week, but a couple of weeks ago, Paul in verse 13 says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. So remember that message, it was about not being lazy, about, about busying yourself, about the, the kingdom business. Well, then Paul immediately says this, verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write these, this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is good. And not just some of the word, all of the word. 
Lord, we particularly lean in to the words of encouragement, the words that describe your love for us and, and how you care for us and you want what's best for us. Lord, your, also, your word also at times calls us to, to the principal's office, calls us to the disciplinarian, calls us to evaluate our walk with you, to see how far we've fallen from you, that your spirit might bring us under conviction and that we might repent and turn back to you and be restored. And Lord, that too is good. And Lord, this passage is all about that. There's not a person that's hearing this message this day that is perfect in every respect of their spiritual walk. We will all have our moments of struggle. Lord, may it be that when we, if we ever reach a point where we struggle to such a degree that in rebellion we turn from your word, we, we willingly disobey your word, that we would have someone who loves us enough, is kind enough to us enough to help us see where we're falling short and encourage us to get back in a right relationship with you. Lord, that's what the church in many ways is about. Helping one another pursue our faith in Jesus and making your name known in this world. And Lord, we can't do that if we're not walking with you daily. So encourage us, I pray, as we open this text. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, we're finally coming to the end of of what turned out to be a long study of Paul's two letters to the church at Thessalonica. We started actually in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the first 10 verses of chapter 1 of the first letter to the Thessalonians on April the 16th. Uh, So we've been in this for quite a while. Uh, Here we are five months later, and I'll be honest with you, I'm a little sad that we've come to the end of of this, this study. It's been encouraging, encouraging to me. It's been quite interesting. Paul's dealt with a lot of interesting t- topics. It's been an, an encouraging study. And I don't know if you've noticed, though, throughout this, this particular letter that we've been reading and studying, 2 Thessalonians, that Paul in many places brings the fire. Uh, he, he goes hard and heavy. Uh, in fact, he comes out of the chute of 2 Thessalonians bringing the fire. In, in chapter 1, he talks about the righteous judgment of God and, and the f- and flaming fire and inflicting vengeance and how some will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Then you get into the second chapter of, of this book and Paul talks about how Jesus is coming back and, and how there's going to be the lawless one and when Jesus comes back that he's going to destroy the lawless one with the breath of his fire, of, of his mouth. And then we see in chapter 3, Paul gets really personal with the Thessalonians and begins to call out lazy Christians, saying to them, some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but you're busybodies. And so in many ways, Paul's a little savage in this letter. Uh, He's not holding back any punches. But then with the verses that we've just read uh, just a moment ago, the, the, the concluding words of this book, Paul actually wraps things up with a gentle call for correction and prayer. He, he wants them to, to land in the right place. In other words, he doesn't just, just throw out the facts and then leave them there for people to figure out what to do. He, he's actually providing a practical word for, for those Christians who continue to walk with the Lord in order that they might be able to help those who aren't living up to expectations and concludes them with these hopeful words for them. Now, Paul has given a lot of instructions to the Thessalonians and to us throughout this letter. 
Things like, hey, don't, don't be too quickly shaken and don't be deceived. Stand firm. Pray. Pray a lot. Imitate hard workers. Don't be lazy. Don't grow weary in doing good. But then he finally comes to this verse we read just a moment ago in verse 14. Of all of these commands and words of instruction that I've given to you, he says in verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, and then he lays out the theme of this concluding passage, this concluding message, and that is this. What do you do with the disobedient, wayward Christian? And that's the theme of of these closing words. What to do with the disobedient, wayward Christian who's a part of your church? What do we do with someone who who claims to know Jesus uh, but is rebelliously not living for Jesus? What What do you do with the person who is on the church roll who says, Jesus is my Lord, but there's really no evidence in their life that you could point to that says that Jesus is Lord over them? Well, Paul has thoughts. On this, And he lays out those thoughts on this last section of 2 Thessalonians, again in verse 14, when he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, he then says this, take note of that person. Take note and have nothing to do with them that he may be shamed. Does that sound gentle to you? Is, is that an encouraging thing to, to, for Paul to say? I believe it is. See, Paul says that if you have a church member who's living disobediently, you don't leave them in that place. You do something about it. You don't leave them their own devices. You don't just simply pray and hope that they catch it along the way. You need to do something, Christian. If you're walking with the Lord, you do something. Two things, actually. One, he says, to take note of that person. By the way, that's more than just noticing that they're not right, okay? Christians can be uh, really good about noticing when another Christian is not walking with the Lord. And the best that they do with that information is to tell someone else about how this other person is not walking with the Lord. Do, do, am, I, am I right about that? We're really good about saying, well, they're so-and-so. It's been a long time since they've been in church. You know what they've been doing. Instead of following Jesus, they've been doing this thing. No, no, Paul says it's more than, when he uses this word, take note, that means more than just noticing that they're not right with the Lord. Originally, this word sort of had a neutral, neutral uh, connotation and meaning. Uh, it meant that you would notice maybe somebody that was doing a good thing and you would note what was good about what they were doing. Or if it were, they were doing a bad thing, somebody wasn't living up to, to expectations, you would take note of it and, and you would note, well, this is where they are falling short. But eventually this word, as it, was, as it evolved in the Greek language, This word that that we have in our language as two words, take note. It eventually began to take on a negative meaning. And you would only use it when you were referring to somebody that was evil. You would take note of that evil person. And when you would say you were taking note of them, you were basically calling them out as a transgressor. And you were really saying this, hey, I'm taking note of you as a way to say, hey, I'm calling you out in front of other people. It was really used to, 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 you would use it in making an example of someone. Just so you know, that's how Paul is using this word. Paul is using it as a way to to call out the the person. He's telling us that if you see another brother or sister in in the faith who's not living up to the faith, they're living in disobedience, they're not living up to the the code of the Scripture, you need to take note of that. That is, call them out. Let it be known that they're not walking where they need to be walking. 
Paul's pretty much saying that if a if a, a Christian in your fellowship is deliberately being disobedient, you call them out. It's not, not a small thing. You take note of their disobedience. You make an example of them. He's effectively saying that ignoring sinful behavior in the church is really not an option for a Christian and for a church that wants to be right with the Lord. If you see it, you call it out. Now let me be very careful here. He's not talking about, though, walking them up on a platform like we're, we're talking about here right now. You know, you go to Matthew chapter 18, and Paul, or Jesus gives us instruction about a, a brother, brother who is caught up in sin. And there is a process by which you do this. And it begins with, if there is an issue between you and another brother, you go to them personally. It's privately. And, 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 and with the intent that that's going to help work things out. If, if that doesn't work things out, then you take another brother with, or, or sister in the Lord with you, and you go, and you're, it's still a sort of a, a private conversation. It's only after they are refusing at the end to, to, to repent and get right with Jesus that it ever makes it before the, the, the full body of believers. But nevertheless, it is a, actually a good thing for one brother in, in, or sister in Christ who is walking with the Lord, who sees someone they care about, another brother or sister in Christ not walking in the Lord, that you take note of that and let it be known. Don't, don't keep it to yourself, but approach them. But just noting the sinner and their sin is not enough. Because the other thing Paul tells them to do there in verse 14 is this, have nothing to do with them. I know that sounds really harsh, but it's really similar to the phrase that he used in in verse 6 of this same chapter where he says to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. If you remember our discussion there, this wasn't a a commentary where you're absolutely uh, distancing yourself from them completely, but it had more to do with association, that you didn't have intimate fellowship with them, Uh, you didn't want them to influence you. Well, the same kind of idea is happening here, but in a different way. And so when Paul says uh, that that to, to, to have nothing to do with them, Uh, What he's really getting at is not, hey, we're going to kick them out of the church, though if they do persist in their sin and their rebellion, if they refuse to repent, that might be an option. No, this has to do with avoiding intimate fellowship. You don't want to come across, uh, when you don't say anything about where they're they're walking the Lord, is you want to come across as endorsing their behavior. You want to encourage them um, uh, to keep on doing what they've been doing, so you, you sort of take a step back. You continue to interact with them, yes, but it's, it has more to do with this ongoing intimate fellowship with them. And there's a point to all of this. There's a point to taking note and calling out their simple behavior and stepping back from them. And Paul puts it there at the end of verse 14. It's this, so that he or she may be ashamed. And again, the point is an embarrassment. It's not about shaming them in front of other people. It's so that they might become ashamed of, of, of where they stand before the Lord, that their shame is, is in relation to, to God. It's to get them to reflect upon their behavior. It's to get them to consider their, their actions. And if they do that, then maybe they'll repent and turn back to Jesus. So what f- verse 14 is giving us here is really an important challenge. When it, when it comes to dealing with the disobedient, wavered Christian, here's a way to define it. We need to, one, we need to confront with concern. Confront with concern. That's really what's, what's motivating Paul here. 
He, he is concerned about the spiritual behavior of some brothers or sisters in Christ in the church at Thessalonica. And, and because he's concerned for them, he knows that they need to be confronted. Out of concern for their spiritual well-being, he and we should confront those not walking with Christ over their sin. Let me ask you, have you ever heard someone say Christians are a bunch of hypocrites? And, and you know, they, they believe in Jesus, they'll say, but they don't really behave like it. And you know what? They're right. They're right. The, the, the Barna Group conducted a survey among millennials on why they don't attend church. And the first reason that they gave was that they didn't find the church to be relevant. And this, but the second reason was hypocrisy of Christians. Particularly, and especially, the moral failures of, of church leaders. You know, the, the church today really has a... a, a reputational problem. Not every church. I'm talking about the church in the Western context. You know, over the last few decades, we've had so much hypocrisy, so much ungodliness, and, and in many, many places, uh, the church has refused to take note of it when they see it and ignored the behavior instead of, of uh, confronting it. But if we love Jesus and He is Lord, if we love His church, we've got to be willing to confront those who are not protecting Jesus' church and the Lord's reputation. Because every time one of us claims the name of Jesus, but doesn't live that out before a lost and dying world, we are bringing shame upon on Jesus and His cross. Every single time. We must call them to repentance and restoration. But, but how we go about that does really matter. More so, the, the state of our heart matters, which is why Paul then says this in verse 15. In regards to that person who has not been obeying what, what they've been told to obey in the Scriptures, Paul says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And so before Paul commands us to warn the person, he tells us how we should consider them, how we should view them. He says, do not regard him as an enemy. That, that is so very important. You know, when, when there are disagreements in a church, and by the way, there will be disagreements from time to time, when there are those who disobey, and yes, some of us will disobey, all of us will have our moments, but some of us may even enter into a season of rebellious disobedience, we got to remember that the person on the other side, if there's a, a, a one Christian who's taking note of another Christian not walking with the Lord and wants to, to encourage them to walk with the Lord, the person on the other side of that equation, the person that is living in disobedience, that person is not the enemy. They're actually family. So often we forget who the enemy is. The enemy is Satan. It's not the person sitting across the aisle in a pew from you. The, the person who's struggling in their walk with the Lord, they're not the enemy. They, they, that person that needs to be called out, they're not the enemy. Again, we need to remember who they actually are. They are family, our family, our spiritual family. So again, how does Paul put it? Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a what? brother. That's family. You know, everything is different with family, right? At least it should be. A family confronts and corrects, but, but the family will do so out of love. And that's what this warning is really about. It's about, correct, it's about correction, but doing so out of love. That word to warn means to admonish, and it really includes the idea of instruction. It's just not saying, hey, you're wrong here. But it has to do with, let me tell you why you're wrong so that you can get it right. 
In other words, the implication is I'm warning you, but only so that you can be able to see what's wrong in order to fix it because I want what's better for you. So what Paul is telling us to do in dealing with the the disobedient, wayward Christian is a second truth, and that is to correct with compassion. Correct with compassion, and we do so as members of the same family. You know, when we're we're confronted and we're corrected by family, it, it ought to be different than when it comes from someone outside of the family, or at least it should be. I want you to imagine if you have kids that are of driving age, that are still living in your household, and one of those kids got in the car and was driving at a a reckless rate of speed. Say they were driving 70 miles an an hour through a, a, a neighborhood. They just gunned it and was going really fast. And while they were going through that neighborhood, going 70 miles an hour, driving recklessly, that a police officer sees them and pulls them over, gives them, issues them a ticket for reckless driving because that's excessive driving in the state of Florida. That could lead to your license being revoked. And if your license gets revoked here in the state of Florida, it will be six months before you can seek to get it reinstated. Now, let's imagine a, a similar scenario but different. But now imagine you as a parent caught your child driving 70 miles an hour through that same neighborhood. No cop this time, but maybe you've got this nifty little app like I've got on my phone where I can track my kids and I can see how fast they're going and I can see how many times they use their phone uh, and how many times they, they come to a fast stop. And no cop catches them, but the only cop that really matters caught them on the app right? I'm not, this is not a true story, by the way, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> but you get a notification on the phone and you see, oh my goodness, 70 miles an hour in a, in a, in a neighborhood that has a posted speed limit of 35 miles, miles an hour. And so you have that confrontation when they get home and you tell them, I'm, I'm grounding you from the use of your car for six months. I want you to compare these two scenarios. Because the consequence of the scenario in both cases are, are mostly the same. Insurance, of course, is going to go up on the one. But both, both of them lose their, in both situations, they lose their, their driving privileges for six months. So they're similar in, in response, but what is different about the two? In the first scenario, love has zero to do with the cop's response and with the law's response. The, the, the correction of losing the license is basically to protect others from the kid's recklessness for a season. But in the second scenario, it's a family relationship. There's a family dynamic, and the license is, is taken to protect others from the kid's uh, recklessness, of course, but it's also to protect the kid from their own recklessness. So it's like, you know, I love you and I want you to be safe. So to teach you that, I'm taking your driving privileges away from you. And so really the difference between these two scenarios, the difference is love. The difference is compassion. We confront a wayward Christian out of concern, yes, but we also correct them out of compassion, out of love for them. And it's because we want what's best for them. And what's what's best for them is that they walk in obedience with the Lord. Amen? All right, so let's be very clear about what Paul is talking about here with these first two points in verses 14 and 15. He's talking about a taboo subject in many, many churches. He's talking about church discipline here. Are you you familiar with the, the concept of church discipline? Church discipline is what we call the process that a church uses when it tries to, to bring back into right, a right fellowship with the church and with the Lord 
It's what we do to restore a wayward Christian. And so many churches, don't, don't, we don't see church discipline used much anymore. Not much in a, in a formal sense. One, one of the reasons why that is is that it's been abused, honestly. Church history is filled with examples of how it was applied inappropriately. But another reason why that we don't use it is it's just getting harder with, with larger churches. It's harder to implement. And you certainly don't want to make a, a big public thing uh, unnecessarily out of someone, but it doesn't mean that church discipline can't go on. Biggest reason may be because is maybe this, it's a personal thing. We don't want anybody else getting in our business, do we? And so we're okay if, in many ways, if someone's not calling other people out because that means they may not call me out. No one likes to be called out. No one likes to be disciplined. But, but, but can I tell you that church discipline can actually be a positive thing? It can and should be a loving thing. You know, when my children were younger, we, we, would, we would discipline when they would, would become disobedient. We'd put them in time out, or we, we'd restrict their use on a video game. Um, when they would fight with one another, we would make them hold hands uh, until, they, you know, until they got over it and talk about how much they love. Sometimes we'd put them in a t-shirt, uh, one big t-shirt, and have to be close up to one another. Why would we do that? Because their behavior was wrong, and if they continued in that behavior, there would be lifelong harm to them, lifelong impact. We, we provided that discipline for them because we loved them. And just as our parents disciplined us out of love, we disciplined them out of love. We want better for them, so we, we seek to correct them. You see, it's true for the family, but it's also true for the spiritual family, for the church. And speaking of the church, I want you to look how Paul winds down this letter, actually. Look at verse 16. He, he gives what is sort of a, a typical closing statement or, or set of statements by Paul. Verse 16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. You often see, you know, Paul saying, you know, peace and grace and love to you, these kind of things to you. But look at the next phrase there in verse 16. Paul says, The Lord be with you all. And guess who's concluded in the all? You guessed it. The disobedient, wayward Christians. That rebellious brother or sister in Christ that you may have to confront, you may have to correct, Paul was including them in that same statement. The Lord be with them too. You see, the reason why we confront and correct those who need discipline is so that we can do one more thing for them. And that's the final point of this message. It's a suitable closing point for this message, and it's this. Continue in community. We want them and us and all of us to continue in this community of faith. It's a reminder that we need each other. If we are to remain unshaken in this world, unshaken has been the theme of our, of our study in 2 Thessalonians. If we are to remain unshaken in this world, if we are to remain faithful and true to the Lord, we never need to lose this thought that we need each other. The church matters. The, the, the community of faith matters. We need each other for a variety of reasons, but we need each other especially so that we can hold one another accountable. We need one another so that if I begin to wander from the faith, one of you will love me enough to come alongside of me and say, hey, I need to take note of something I'm seeing in your life. And I, I, I don't want to call you out, but I got to call you out because I, I think it's hard, harmful. It's harmful to you. It's harmful to other people. And so I'm pointing this out to you, but I'm doing so because I love you and I want what's best for you. 
And so we need each other so that if I wander, you'll come alongside of me. But, or if you wander, I will be there for you. And Christian, let me just, if I could say this, church member, don't, don't, don't. Do not, do not, do not take this church for granted. The Lord has given you this family of faith as a gift. And the Lord has given the church, this local body of believers that we have committed ourselves to, that we have covenanted uh, to be a part of as members of this church, as a way in which the Lord can direct His love and His care and His concern toward us. So often when God shows His love and His care and His concern for us, it comes through other believers. It comes through the church. And listen, if you're not formally a part of this spiritual family, let me, let me encourage you. If you're, if you're not a part of a, another spiritual family, not active in another congregation, let me, let, let me encourage you to take care of that today. When we conclude here, there'll be an opportunity for you to meet a pastor and talk about how you can begin this journey of, being, of partnering with us. Because if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be a part of a spiritual family, a part of a church. And if you're not, you're really a, a spiritual orphan. More importantly, and and something that must come first before you become a part of a church family, before you become a member of this local body, you need to become a part of the church universal. The way that you do that is you experience the grace of Christ. You know, Paul concludes his letter by saying, look, I'm writing this letter in my own hand like I typically do so that you know that it's me, how sincere I am. And after mentioning that, he, he says in verse 18, just what sometimes seems to be a throwaway phrase. It's not for Paul, but we may throw it away because he says it so often. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. As Paul is signing this letter off, the last words he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, it's revealing that Paul's great desire for them was for God's grace and blessing to abound in them. And can I tell you that's my, 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 my hope for you, my desire for you as the pastor of this church? Nothing would warm my heart more than for you to experience the grace of Jesus Christ and all of the blessings that come from it. But the only way for you to experience it is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to know him. You have to to believe who who the Bible says that he is. That he is the son of God. That he is God. That he lived a perfect life. And he came to this, this earth in order to do for you, to do for me what we could not do for ourselves And that was to pay the penalty of our sin. Among the many things that the Bible talks about, the Bible tells us what we are like. He tells us about our nature. The Bible describes us as fallen in nature, that we are dead in sin and trespasses, that we're sinners, and that we must pay the penalty of that sin, which is physical death, yes, but more significantly spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. And that there is nothing that you or I can do to rectify that problem that exists between us and God, that separation. And as much as I talk about the importance of the church and being a member of the church, a local body of believers, and it's important, even having your name on a church roll somewhere is not enough for you to be forgiven of your sins. The only way, according to the Scriptures, that a person can be forgiven of their sins is based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that He offered up at the age of 33 years of His life when he died for our sins upon the cross and he was buried. Now something happened after he was buried. Three days after he died, on that third day, the scriptures tell us that he rose from the grave. He came back to life under his own power. 
And why that is significant, for one reason, it shows that he had power over death, but it also showed that he had power over sin. But also the miracle of it was a testimony of the fact that Jesus wasn't just a human being like you and I, but that Jesus was God incarnate, God in the flesh. He was fully God and fully man in the same person, which enabled him to do for us, again, what we could not do. He could die for us and our sin because he had no sin of his own. And he had the power to come back to life because he is divine. He is God in the flesh. And in order for a person to have a relationship with Jesus, you need to have your sins forgiven. And the only one that can forgive you of your sins is Jesus. And he forgives you on the basis of what he did upon the cross. He died, was buried, and came back to life so that you may be forgiven. Now, this forgiveness is not automatic. It doesn't just happen to everyone. But it only comes to those who recognize that Jesus is Lord, have faith in him, and repent of their sins, and turn to him in faith. And if you've not yet opened your heart to Jesus, you've not asked the Lord to forgive you and confess that you're a sinner, today is a really, really, really good day for that to happen for you. In just a moment, I'm going to have a word of prayer. And we're going to continue on in our service. Um, But by the time we get to the end of our service, and we'll dismiss, you'll know when it happens, there's going to be a pastor that's going to be standing at the cross. You see the cross to my left or to my right to your left? There's going to be a pastor there, and we've said the last amen. If you're here today, and based upon what you've heard of this gospel that I've just shared in these last few moments, that you've never come to a place in your life where you've recognized Jesus as Savior and Lord, and you've not confessed him to him that you're a sinner and have asked him to forgive you of your sins, and, but you re- recognize even now that it is time for you to do that, we've got a pastor who will be standing at that cross waiting for you As people are gathering up their things and making their way out of here, the pastor's going to be there. Would you do this one thing? Would you make a step of faith? Take a step of faith, get out of your pew at the concluding amen, and walk right over to that cross and say, hey, I want to know more about how I can become a Christian. I want to know more about Jesus. Or however you want to word it. And it will be their privilege, their sincere privilege, to talk to you about how you can trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Can I pray for you over that? Let me just pray. Lord, I am grateful for the church, and I'm also mindful that the church is made up of those who have put their faith and trust in you, Lord. And I'm, I'm grateful that we do have this church family, that you've saved us, that you provided salvation, and then upon our confession of faith in you and repentance and turning to you, that we became new creatures. The old has passed away, and there's something new within us, that your spirit now dwells within us, and that we now have a spiritual family that's called the church. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by the words today, if anything, by this message, that each of us should strive to walk in obedience to you. But Lord, I'm also thankful that this church is a Bible-believing church, and not just the parts we like, but even the parts that are difficult and hard. And we see that that text from time to time calls us to do things that may be uncomfortable, And that may include seeing a brother or sister in Christ who's not walking with you and out of love, out of compassion, confront them. Confront them with care for them, but also, Lord, to correct them out of love. Lord, I I pray we don't have to do that often, but I, I pray that we will do that because we want to be a faithful, obedient church. 
And Lord, I pray that those who have heard this message will see that that is a message of of great love and hope for people. But Lord, I'm also mindful that there are some who are not yet a part of the church who need to be saved today. Oh Lord, let it be this day. Encourage them, even now, by by the convicting work of your spirit deep within them. Convict their spirit to be drawn to yours. And lead them by faith to trust you. So we ask this and we pray it in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our God. Amen. Amen.